Friends, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you one of the great leaders in the Canadian Academy. Like a Steve Jobs or a Warren Buffett, choose your favorite rebel pioneer leader, Sheldon Levy is cut from a slightly different cloth than his academic peers. The world of universities is, like most distinct professional cultures, different than the real world. It has its own rules, its own rituals, but its great leaders are the ones who know how to bridge that world with ours, and that has been Sheldon's genius all his life. It was the key to his success when he was building York University to a level it had never achieved previously, early in his career, to making Sheridan College the first among equals in the college system in Ontario, working to win special status for U of T through his connections at Queen's Park. He used to joke that uh, his office was about 200 meters from the Premier's office, so that gave him some advantage where U of T was concerned for several administrations. Sheldon has always had the strategic vision to see what donors and politicians and the bureaucracy and, as he describes them, his shareholders, his students and future alums need and to match their requirements to the requirements of excellence in education. His career capper has been Ryerson. I'm old enough to remember the sneers about Rye High flung by competitors about the campus of Toronto's third university. But let me tell you, my friends, walk around that campus today and your jaw will drop. There is a pride and a swagger among the student body. There is a gleam and an uh, appeal to the incredible architecture that has been assembled uh, under Sheldon's leadership that has never existed previously. I was going to describe this as the, the crown jewel, but Sheldon says, wait for it, the crown jewel is yet to come on Young Street. I won't steal Sheldon's thunder by describing his vision of the future for Ryerson and Canadian education, but let me simply close with this thought. It took the creativity and ability to bridge different worlds that Sheldon is so expert at to turn a building that was our beloved Maple Leaf Gardens for those of us of my generation for most of our lives and then a ghost town for a decade into this magnificent facility. May I simply say it's my great honor to introduce to you one of the giants of Canadian academe, my friend Sheldon Levy. Well, Robin, thank you for that kind introduction and uh, given the, uh, the recognition of this great place, it's uh, just appropriate for me to say that uh, we had a great partner in uh, Loblaws and the Weston family and uh, Jane Marshall uh, my, as, uh, is here and we said uh, the house that our organizations built together. But ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank you uh, so much in the Empire Club for inviting me to speak with you today. And I'd also like to thank you for agreeing to host this event in our new Madame Athletic Center at the Gardens. And it's great uh, for me that Peter Gilgan is here, who, of course, gave us that name of that center. So again, Peter, thank you very, very much.
I'd like to extend special welcomes, and the difficulty now is that there's so many specials here that if I was able to take the time to recognize everyone, I would say, and thank you very much for being here. So uh, I would just mention that we have uh, all of our chancellors here at one time. We, of course, have Lawrence Bloomberg, our present chancellor, Raymond Chang, John Eaton, and David Crombie, and there's very few times that you have your whole family together with you, so I want to welcome them. Phyllis Yaffe, the chair of the board, and Nadir Mohammed, our vice chair. And uh, thank you, Nadir, for not only being the vice chair, but the sponsor for this event. We also have with us two of our on-docs, and it's likely that we have more, and I apologize, but I know we have Valerie Pringle here, and Valerie, it's great you're here, and Sabi Marwa is here, and it's great that you're here with us. And we have with us Judith Levko, who will soon be a, a non-doc at this convocation coming up. But, of course, we have many, many Ryerson people here, and I want to thank you all for uh, being here with us today. But most important, of course, is I want to talk about our students, I want to talk about young innovators, and I want to talk about innovation. Uh, but there's one person I'd like to welcome, uh, it's CTV correspondent and longtime AM uh, host, Seamus O'Regan. Seamus, are you over there? Seamus, uh, welcome, Seamus. Now, I decided that in this event that, we're, that if you're an innovator or you believe in innovation, you must believe in taking some level of risk. It goes with the business. So I hope if I announce that uh, Seamus and, and Ryerson are working together with another entity for a new series on TV that will go from coast to coast to coast on young innovators, their challenges, their brilliance, and bring to Canadians what is possible in our country through youth. That, uh, Seamus, I hope I'm not overstating and uh, jumping to a conclusion that the deal is done. But I figure that if I have now concluded the deal, how can anyone say we're not going to do it? So, well, all of that is really to say uh, I'm a big believer in the innovative capacity of our young people, and that's what this talk about is today. And I see so clearly not only the critical importance that youth will play in our economy, but to be honest, if we don't get it right, the standard of living that we enjoy today will not be duplicated. So let me paint a picture for you as I see it today. Right now, in March of this year, the Canadian economy lost 55,000 jobs, unemployment rose to 7.2%, and economists went on to say that they expect job creation to stay low for months to come. So if you take all that for granted and say that's the best we could do, it's not good enough. So it raises the question, so where are the jobs to come from? And the best answer I found on that came from a study from the Kauffman Foundation. And according to that study, all net job growth comes entirely from startup firms. That answer surprised me at first, but the more I read, the more it made sense. Because startups begin with only one or two, maybe three people, 
And if they fail, you only lose one or two or three jobs. But if they encounter success, they're the ones that hire. They hire to solidify their success, and they hire to expand. And they are the ones that create jobs by the dozens without shedding any. In fact, startups are more important to the Canadian economy than ever before, and their importance is only going to grow. A recent CIBC study found that more than a half a million Canadians are now starting their own firms. It also found that more and more of them are young people in their 20s. And it found that startup activity is growing the most in sectors that are rapidly going digital, whether it's the health sector, whether it was education, whether it was science and technology. The typical Canadian entrepreneur of today is not starting a restaurant, is not starting a trucking business. Today's Canadian entrepreneurs are going digital because that's where the economy is going digital. So, this is all good news. Young people are building their companies right where they are needed, in our digital economy. As The Economist put it, the challenge ahead for every country is to extract the maximum economic benefit from the digital technology. And this is not just a global challenge, it is a global race. Other countries and other cities get it. They are racing hard. New York is reinventing itself as a technology hub. In the UK, London has created Europe's largest startup accelerator focused on financial technology. And in South Korea, the government of Seoul has created Digital Media City that's expected to be completed in 2015. So this is a race where our future standard of living is the prize. Canadian cities are in that race as well. And this city, Toronto, is actually faring surprisingly well. Toronto was recently ranked as the fourth best place in the world to start a new tech company. We were only behind Silicon Valley, New York and London. So Toronto can compete. Canada can, can compete. There's no doubt about it. But the real challenge is not can we compete. The challenge is can we win? Can we become a recognized global leader? To win that race, I believe the city needs three things. Of course, it needs talent. It needs, and it needs spaces to nurture that talent. And it needs all sectors of our economy on-site, working together to become a world leader in digital innovation. So what does Toronto have? Well, let's look. We have lots of talent, loads of talent. And we have lots of creative spaces dedicated to helping innovative young companies succeed. Post-secondary institutions in this city and growing across the country are very active in making creative spaces available for talented young innovators. And so is the private sector. So we have the talent and we have the space. But to make a real run for it, we need to do what London and New York and Seoul are doing. We need to open our entire economy to startups. We need government at all levels and the private sector to become what I am going to call startup friendly. So what I'd like to do now is to show you the kind of talent and innovation this city has to offer. So ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you three 
groups of entrepreneurs. They are in different business verticals, but they have much in common. They have the talent, they have the energy, they have the drive, and they have the courage. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce the first, Phosphorus Media. Our first guest is 25-year-old graduate of Ryerson's radio television arts program. During his studies, he found his own interactive media company, Phosphorus Media, and today he is quickly gaining a reputation across North America as a truly innovative problem solver. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jonathan Ingham. Thank you, Sheldon. Good afternoon, everybody. It's so nice to see familiar faces. Uh, Doug Wilson, President and CEO of Sony Canada, thank you very much for uh, coming today. Uh, I just want to start with a, a very quick story uh, of how I started Phosphorus Media. I started Phosphorus in part to uh, a first a very successful bet. Um, when I was in university, I was convinced that one day Virgin Radio would be a dominant brand here in Canada. I want to bring it. So, at the beginning, I bought virginradio.ca, the domain name, and soon I started streaming Virgin Radio UK through that site. Two years later, I found out that Astro Media acquired the rights for, their Virgin, for the Virgin brand in Canada. They got in touch with me, and we did the deal for the domain name. Virgin Radio, like you all know, I'm sure, is a dominant brand in Canada. So the proceeds from that actually provided me with my original uh, C money for, for what Phosphorus is today. At Phosphorus Media, we have a knack for creating very cool little utilities and interactive media that enhance not only and engage the customer experience. Our products intentionally blur the line between the transfer of information and entertainment. Some are really, really complex, and some are quite simple. While I was in school, I was messing around with interactive technologies, interactive floors, walls, storefront windows, just to give some context of what it was all about. Create a couple demo videos and then a website, and sure enough, I got a call. I was contracted to go down to New York by L'Oreal, a $25 billion global cosmetic company who is celebrating their 100-year anniversary with a new product launch. What they want to do is essentially create an interactive runway for a massive publicity event. Essentially, the runway moved and manipulated as models walked down this runway. The job was absolutely massive pressure. L'Oreal said to me that if this doesn't work, you're never working with L'Oreal again. If this does work, then we're going to take this on a series of hair and, hair and beauty trade shows throughout the U.S. So after two days of uh, long, long hours, we got it to work, and nonetheless, they ended up touring across a series of hair and beauty trade shows, and here are a couple of images of what it looked like. They absolutely loved it, and apparently L'Oreal still talks about this interactive runway even to this day. The next job I want to talk to you about is something, uh, an interesting little application that we did for Matrix, which is actually a brand underneath L'Oreal. What they want to do is create something for their trade show environment. As we all know, trade shows are highly competitive, and everybody wants eyeballs and attention in their booth. They knew they wanted a touchscreen, but they weren't sure what, what they actually wanted. So our goal and our job was to come up with the content and with the interface. So let me just show you what that looked like very quickly. This is what we developed for them, what we called the Matrix Lux Cloud, where essentially users could come up to this touchscreen and navigate this 3D space with their finger. Uh, profile shots or hairstyles would seemingly come out of nowhere, come into focus, and users could touch a hairstyle that they liked, and they could learn how to achieve that hairstyle and with what products were used. 
So it was a bit of a novelty application, but the, the app had one very specific goal. If you were in another trade show booth or you're 300 feet away and you saw somebody playing with this, you'd be compelled to go over and take a look at it. And that's exactly what happened. Matrix absolutely loved this application, specifically because it was exactly on brand with what they were trying to do. Innovative products, innovative technology, and this screen basically echoed what they were all about. This, this application toured through a series of hair and beauty trade shows in the States as well, and was a major focus at their St. Louis trade show booth. Apparently, St. Louis is a big deal for hair. I'm not too sure, but um, anyway. Um, another job that I want to talk to you about uh, very quickly is a recent one we did for uh, better connecting conference speakers with live audiences. Um, our client was Yahoo, uh, the internet pioneer based out of California. Yahoo was holding their global sales conference in Las Vegas, and this was very interesting because this was their first time their new CEO, Marissa Mayer, was speaking in front of her global sales team of 1,400 people. What she wanted to do is make the Yahoo presentation as interactive as possible. So here's what we did. We created a mobile application where everybody downloaded it in advance of the conference. And essentially, the speakers on stage could pose a series of questions to the audience, and they could vote either A, B, or C on that question. Results were um, tabulated and displayed in real time on these large projection screens, and essentially these dots would animate in to represent people's votes. What they liked about it is that they could then discuss, discuss what the answers were, and more importantly, they could see how their actual sales team is responding uh, to these answers. So it was some great insight and analytics on what the sales team was thinking. A secondary little component was this ask a question feature, where throughout the entire presentation, at any point, people could submit this form, it would come to us backstage, and we would push it to downstage monitors that was facing the speaker. So at any time, for example, the CEO, Marissa Mayer, when she was speaking, real-time relevant questions were coming up on these monitors. And more often than not, than when they were speaking, she would stop and say, you know what, we got a great question for Jeff, he wants to know where the future of search is going, or whatever it may be, and she took it right there on the spot. And this was very interesting because it was kind of providing that one-on-one -on -one interaction with a massive room. Obviously, she had a lot of questions and not all could be answered uh, during that time. We had it saved to a, a database. We gave all that information to, uh, to Yahoo. And as a matter of fact, Marissa Mayer personally followed up with each individual question that was asked. So it was, uh, it was a really cool application and something that uh, they really enjoyed. It was a, a small component in terms of cost of the conference, but it ended up having, if you can believe, one of the biggest impacts, which was a, a real excitement for us. I know it's absolutely crazy. How on earth does a small company in Toronto get a job with Yahoo who has hundreds of mobile engineers? Who would have thought? I certainly would have. I think the answer is we are nimble, fast, low cost, focused, and we are technically proficient. The last job I want to show you very quickly is something that we actually did here in Toronto for a condo developer. Like most developers, they have a very specific goal of letting the audience or the customer know what their house is going to look like. Our task was to come up with an application to show them what it's going to feel like. So what we did is create um, what we called a sales maximization tool, where users could come up to this touchscreen, and beside this screen there was a series of samples and swatches. They could pick it up, they could feel the marble or uh, the countertops, come to the screen, select, say, kitchen or bathroom, and they could start to see and feel um, one sec, what their kitchen was going to look like in these various upgrades. So as you can see from uh, like the dark brown to the white, it dramatically changes the look and feel of the room. 
And for a lot of developers, the sale of upgrades is, is a big deal for them. And if people can have the tool to make confident decisions, they are more willing to open up their pocket and make those purchases. For us, and for the developer, seeing is believing. And if you give them the confidence um, to, to really feel and understand what they're getting, they will do so. So I know that was a race through four very interesting, very different projects with some interesting company names. Sheldon kindly asked me to speak today because he has a keen interest in a young entrepreneur's foray into business. He also has been fascinated in the fact that I've had great success in the States and fairly slow acceptance here in Canada. So my pitch to you is simple, because I'm not going to miss this opportunity. <laughs> my name is Jonathan Ingham. Our company is Phosphorus Media. Please come and see what a young, ambitious Canadian can do for you. I can make interactive digital media work for you, your business, your institution, your government. Simply put, come and see what digital can do for you. Thank you. Ladies and thank you, Jonathan. That was great. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I now would like to introduce to you uh, Bionic La Laboratories. I first met our next two guests three years ago. They came to my office after winning a, a, an engineering event in Ontario and showed me what was a class project. It was a mechanical prosthetic arm controlled by nothing more than the user's own brain waves. It was an amazing feat for two young men who were barely 20 years old. Now their company, Bionic Labs, employs 14 engineers and is already planning its first IPO. The technology that they have put together from circuit boards to the software is leading state of art. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michael Prawada and Tiago Carries. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello. Thank you very much, Sheldon. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm one of the co-founders of Bionic Laboratories. Uh, I'm really glad that Sheldon mentioned the, the prosthetic technology development because that's actually where our roots started. Uh, myself and Tiago, we were in the biomedical engineering program at Ryerson University. And we, we, we kind of had this sim very similar interests. And, and we, when we got together to think about ideas and what we could do, we, we had this crazy idea to, to develop something that was, was, was like, uh, the, sorry. Um, the U.S. had spent over $80 million developing a very similar technology, and, and two young guys out of university, um, pe pe people looked at us and they're like, how can, how can two young guys do it? Well, um, we did it. And actually, I was, I, was, I was very happy to hear that Seamus is here because he was actually one of our first test pilots, and uh, he, he showed it to the world on, on Discovery Channel. Um, and so we got worldwide recognition for, for, for what we did, and, and we kind of built up our confidence. And so we, we looked at gaps, we, we were looking for gaps in, me, in the medical market. And, and what we found was that there was no technology currently available to get paralyzed people walking. So what, what we found was we had two options. Option number one was, uh, and there's nothing wrong with, with this option, but option number one was we could finish our bachelor degrees, do a master's, uh, maybe do a PhD, maybe do a postdoc, uh, after finding a, a tenured track position um, at a university, uh, maybe after applying for grants six, seven, or eight times, we could, we could fund to do, like we could get the grants to do what we wanted to do, or we could start a company. 
that's when we founded Bionic Laboratories. Um, it's, it's, it's been a tough road, uh, but because uh, our competitors had already spent uh, over a decade trying to do the same thing and tens of millions of dollars doing it, um, to date, we've spent $1.5 million and we have achieved what our competitors have achieved. Um, I'd like to introduce to you um, Tiago Carries. He's uh, my co-founder in Bionic Laboratories and he's going to talk to you about what we've developed. Thank you, Sheldon. Thank you, Michael. So Michael talked about rehabilitation in spinal cord injury, which is basically the device that I have here. Uh, there's a video you can see, the leg is working while I speak. But basically, Bionic Laboratories focus on developing technology to help paraplegics get out of the chair, walk, and rehabilitate. What I have here is a piece of mechanical device, and basically it's a robotic uh, exoskeleton. We call it exoskeleton because it's basically external skeleton to your human body. And we call it exolegs because it's also a pair of legs. What that does is the paraplegic can sit down in this device. It's a, mechanical, it's a mechanical device with motors, electronics, sensors. There's a program that runs inside. The person can sit down in this pair of legs, and at any time they want to stand up and walk, they can just do it. I'm going to try to explain to you guys in three minutes how does that work. We put sensors in the back of the device, so basically sensors capture electrical signal from your body. There are sensors on the side of the legs and in the feet. And just to give an analogy before explaining exactly technically how it works, think about it. Imagine a TV and a DVD player. You have the TV, the cable connected to the DVD player. You put a DVD, movie starts spinning, turning. The DVD player is sending that signal to the TV. The only reason why you get that signal is because of the cable. You cut the cable, you have no more signal. Same thing that happens with spinal cord injuries. You have the nerve going down through the brain to, let's say, your leg, and then that signal, it's cut because of an accident. You're still thinking about moving your leg. The person, the paraplegic thinks about, I want to move my leg, but that doesn't work because the signal stops and the brain doesn't go down to the muscle. What do we do? We create a transmitter. Not necessarily an electronic transmitter, but you can think about like a transmitter that you put on your DVD to reattach the cable. You can't physically attach the nerve of the spinal cord uh, of the injury. There's techniques for that that are being developed, but right now you can't do that yet. So you use a mechanical device to do that job for you. This mechanical device, as I said, has sensors in the back and all over the device, and they pick sin uh, signal, signal activity from the back and the shoulders of the patient. For example, the paraplegic is sitting in the chair, wearing the device, and they want to stand up and walk. All they have to do is they have to move, your, move their back, the shoulder, and that way we pick up those signals and the computer inside understands the person wants to stand up and walk. If any of you try to stand up from your chair, you see that we don't stand up like this. We actually lean forward first. So there's a lot of different movements that we can pick up using this device to trigger an action. Uh, an important thing, a lot of people ask me, why do you start doing this? Like, what's the reason, right? And as we speak, there are 10 million people sitting in wheelchairs worldwide. And the wheelchair was invented 1,500 years ago. Nothing after that has been developed to help paraplegics. We don't get much into detail, so a lot of people don't know that, but you get an accident, spinal cord injury, you can't walk, you sit in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. You, even if you have money to pay for the device, even if you go to the Bass Hospital, you can't get it because it's just not there. This can, it's an option. It's not, we're not replacing the wheelchair, but it's an option for paraplegics to use the device to stand up, get back to society, increase the self-esteem. And of course, the rehabilitation aspect of this is huge because rehabilitation nowadays is then a very archaic procedure. Patient goes to a clinic, 
the doctor holds the leg, moves up and down. As the muscle moves, you're getting the rehabilitation. It's kind of like exercise. The more you do it, the better you get. This will allow the person to just walk around their house. They, they're going from their room to the washroom to the kitchen. They're rehabilitating because this will allow them to move their leg. And as they're moving, the muscle is moving. Neuroplasticity comes into place, which is basically the brain understanding that the muscle is there. And they can walk again. Uh, Bionic Labs raised $2 million. It's uh, seed finance in the beginning, which basically took us from like zero concept idea to this prototype that right now we test using our engineers and some test pilots to test it. Uh, we didn't go into a formal clinical trial yet because we're going to do that in the year. And then we are planning on doing an IPO in 2014. My time is running out, but I would like to answer any other questions afterwards. Thank you. Our last guest is a 33-year-old Ryerson graduate who is, all, who is a faculty member now. He has more than 18 publications and patents to his name. Last year, he was honored by MIT as one of the world's top innovators under age 35. The Smithsonian also ranked him as one of the top six innovators to watch for 2013. Most recently, Forrester Research highlighted his technology as a platform to build intelligent mobile applications. And today, he is going to present that technology right now. So please welcome the founder of Flybits, Hossein Ranama. Thanks very much, Sheldon. Appreciate it. Um, if you think about how you're using your mobile devices these days, it's very similar to how you use your stationary machines, such as laptops and desktops you're still searching for the information. You go on Google, you type queries, and you find information that you think are relevant for you. But when you're on mobile devices, and you have a limited screen size, you have limited battery power, you have fluctuating bandwidth, not on Rogers, um, <laughs> you want the information to be there when you need it. You don't want to search for it. Based on who you are, where you are, and all the contextual information around you, you want the information to show up, you click on it, and it's there for you. Think about a university that students go to their classroom, suddenly the lecture notes will pop up, and the professor will walk in, and they will get the lecture note, which is connected to the projector. Think about a hospital that the same application can navigate a patient or a doctor to where they are supposed to go and connect them to their doctor. If you're using uh, GoTransit, uh, we have built an application for them called GoMobile, which is using the same system that I will be showing it to you here. Now, in order to make that happen, a lot of, their, a lot of companies out there are imposing infrastructure and proprietary hardware installation to be able to create these smart spaces. What we have done at Flybits, we have created a software-as-a-service platform that you can basically select anywhere in the world rely on the operator's networks there, and turn buildings, rooms, airports, train stations smart using a visual interface without any coding or any particular uh, hardware uh, deployment. So what I would like to show you now is that on the right-hand side, you see a browser-based management console that can allow you to map the world. And on the right-hand side, you see the experience of a mobile user. It's very simple to select a mapping engine, choose a building or a location that you're interested in, and start building a zone around the area that you're interested. Now, zones, in the context of Flybits, 
are geofences that are associated with rules, logics, and semantics. So when you bring a mobile device in their proximity, your phone will understand how to behave. It will know this is an airport, I should behave this way, or this is a hospital, I should, I should adapt accordingly. Now what my colleagues are doing now on the backstage is that they are building a zone on top of where we are and we are going to turn this building and this event into a smarter and more context-aware environment. And for those of you who have downloaded Flybits, you can actually interact with, uh, with, with my colleagues on the backstage. So what my, what my colleague just did, he created a zone called the Empire Club of Canada Zone. It suddenly popped up on my screen. So think about this as an app store but it's a decentralized app store which is allowing this building to act as a centralized repository and give applications and services which is relevant to people. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to connect to the zone. Immediately there, it shows me that there are 14 people connected to the zone at the moment with their phone, how many views we have had, and by clicking on that, we will be able to see those of you who are connected. Now, I don't have any particular uh, deployment here. It's just relying on our Wi-Fi network and, uh, and, and, and other telco operators' network. Now, let's say I want to send a video or audio or a CAD drawing or a database file to all of you here in, in, in the audience. All we got to do is to select from a template that we have created, choose the template that we are interested in, drag and, and drop it to this location, and it will suddenly pop up on all of your screens. So in this case, you're dragging and dropping a video, searching a media repository. In this case, we are choosing a video from an Empire Club of Canada. I'm actually receiving a message uh, from, from someone, from Harlan Nelson, that this is very cool. Thank you. Um, and now what happens is, by publishing that service, it will immediately show up on my screen on the left-hand side. So if you look at the iPad, it's there. I click on it. The video will run right away. Um, and by playing on it, by, by clicking on play, I will start capturing on who's watching this video, how many views that I've had, what are the demography of the people that are watching it, and I will capture that right away in real time based on the protocol that we have created. So those are the data that you can capture from that. Now, you can do the same thing with any data structure. For example, a web page. All I got to do, drag and drop a web page, point it to a URL, select an area of the picture, and again, push it to people in the audience. All right, so now paste it uh, and publish the service, and again, uh, it should show up on my screen. So again, if you look at the iPad, it's there. If I click on it, it shows up. Now, think about the paradigm shift here. I'm not searching, it just pops up based on who I am, where I am, and what types of services that I'm looking at. Now, I can apply that to Twitter feeds, to Facebook pages. So if you don't want to confuse your audience with different social media channels, bring them all under the umbrella of a zone, and you can update that over the air, and all of that will take place under the structure of a zone right there. Let's say you, have, um, you, have, you want to associate timestamps to these services. Think about a mall that you want a, they want a promotion to go live within a particular time to a certain group of people. All they do, they associate a timestamp to one of the services, and they'll say probably this promotion is valid from this time to this time. The moment that they add the timestamp, that service will be removed from my handset, as you can see it here. Uh, because the timestamp is not valid. But if they delete the timestamp, it will start to show up again 
now think about these use cases at a university we have students we have professors we have staff members we have engineers we want all of them to have one app but when they come to the campus all of them should get the relevant apps and services on their handset all you got to do is to associate roles and identities to your zone which you own so think about as a real estate you can add people from a social network such as Facebook or LinkedIn or your enterprise social network, add them to your role, and then based on their role, which could be a self-identification from the phone or managed by the zone owner, each person will get the most relevant application on their device. So in this case, my colleagues can add me to one of the roles, which I'm not part of. You'll see that it will be removed from my handset. They will add me back to that role, and it will pop up on my screen again. So now they add me to a role that I'm not part of. Now they added me again, and it shows up again. Another component that we are focusing a lot on uh, is on business intelligence and analytics generation. So if these zones that I show you can act as analytics vacuums that you can deploy anywhere in the world, you can actually monitor what's happening. If you look on the right, you can capture all sort of analytics in terms of what's happening in these areas in real time. How many people are connected? what types of services is being used most, what demography is looking, what type of services and their preferences, and they are all real-time. So just to see how responsive it is, if you look at that pie chart there, I can click on it, and that value will get incremented in real-time with no delay. Now imagine that you can deploy all of these across the world, so each shop, each store, each brand, or even each house can have a zone that can allow these geographical spaces to communicate with each other. This is the same type of an application that we are working with our uh, friends at the city of Ottawa to turn Ottawa into a smart city. We are working with our folks at Metrolinx to make intelligent transport systems and context of our transit in Ontario a, a pioneer in the field. Uh, we are working with a partner in Japan, in Tokyo, uh, to turn Tokyo into a smart city so when people walk around, they can discover things that are most relevant to them. And one of the recent projects that we just secured is actually for the, is with a telco in Europe, is for the premier football club in England. So when fans go to a football club, they can actually interact with the game, they can uh, look at different camera feeds, they can share things with each other, and it's a recent project that we started uh, recently. Our vision at Flybits is that if web pages were the founding blocks of the internet probably 20 years ago, we want zones to be the founding block of the mobile internet which is emerging, especially the industrial internet. And we are very proud that this is happening in Toronto, in Ontario, and we are very pleased about the support that Ryerson have given us. Thank you. So uh, Hussein uh, described uh, one application, and it's for a soccer game. And as I understand it, if I've got it right, that at a certain point, the fans at the soccer match hold up their phones, and then what's sent to their phones is cheers for that, that team or something of that. How many people know where I'm going? <laughs> well. You probably don't know that 46 years ago today, there was a celebration in Toronto. This was the uh, celebration of the Leafs' last Stanley Cup win. <laughs> 46 years ago today, less one week, somewhere below us, the Leafs had won the Stanley Cup. So 
rather than talking about uh, soccer matches, I wonder if there's something that we could do that is more relevant to this building and today's game that uh, the Leafs will be playing. Sure. So what we can do to cheer the Leafs for tonight, I can ask my colleagues to dra drag and drop a Go Leafs Go chant to the crowd. If you have the app, you can have it on and we can all chant for, uh, for, uh, for the Leafs. All you got to do is to connect to the Empire Club of Canada zone. I can make it auto-run so it runs automatically on your system, but because we value your privacy, we want you to click on it. And whenever you're ready, that video should have been shown up on your phone. Let's just click on it together. Are you all ready? One, two, three. Should happen soon. If I have audio. some fun. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there are many, many more uh, men and women I could introduce to you that I would call tremendous innovators working across this province and this country. But I think I've given you some idea today of what, I ha what they have to offer. They can be trusted to enhance any firm's brand, image, or customer service. They can help just about any firm in this city or this country. And they want to and they're ready to be full players in their economy. We simply need to open our economy to them. We are already moving in the right direction and I want to tell you about two recent steps governments have taken. The federal government in its budget announced a $60 million fund for incubators and accelerators. And the government on Ontario in its budget announced the creation of Youth Entrepreneurship Fund and Youth Innovation Fund. Initiatives like these in Ontario will help create the right environment for business and people to succeed. They encourage the private sector to take risks, make the investment, create the jobs, and drive innovation. And the very best way to help young entrepreneurs is get the, their foot in the doors. Let me put it this way. It's fantastic that we are funding incubators and young startups because it helps them develop their company and their innovation. Now we need to hire them so they can put their innovation to the test. The Canadian economy is not particularly good at being an early adopter of innovation. We, not, we do not work easily with startup firms, but it's time that changes. I encourage you to learn more about the startups, visit local incubators, get a closer look up at the kinds of companies being incubated, reshape your RFP requirements so more of them can bid. The way RFPs are structured today, they often act as a structural barrier for startups. Young companies cannot complete the 100-page proposals or present tens of millions of dollars in insurance. And by the very definition, they do not have that long list of achievements. But they are ready to prove themselves and they need a chance. I am friends with an entrepreneur who has worked in the Valley and most recently in Toronto. He is one of the most dynamic entrepreneurs I ever met, and he tells me that when he's in the Valley, he can get a meeting with a decision maker within 48 hours. He maintains it could be any firm, a bank, a tech company, or government offices, because the Valley 
knows how much they gain from startups. In the Valley, if you don't meet with the young startups, it's considered a lost opportunity. But in Toronto, he says, you're going to be lucky to get a meeting, and if you get one, it's six to eight weeks at best. And that goes probably true for any city in Canada. So that's the gap we have to close, from eight weeks to 48 hours. You heard these young entrepreneurs tell you about their businesses. You heard their clients. How many of their clients were Canadian? Very few. But there were some, and if you talk to these companies, they'll tell you what a great experience they've had, whether it was with Hossein's Flybits and Metrolinx, whether it's with Jonathan's companies, whether it's with Chapters Indigo, who has also hired a DMZ company. By working with startups, these companies gain access to cutting-edge technology that helps them serve their customers better. These companies have learned what Silicon Valley has known for a long time. They learned that waiting eight weeks is lost opportunity. 20 years ago, even as little as 10, sustainability was not part of our business values. Offices didn't recycle paper. No one really worried about reducing energy consumption. But today, we know being sustainable is not only the right thing to do, it's good business. Ten years from now, we will say the same thing about startups. Working with startups is the right thing to do, and it's good for business, it's good for our economy, and it's great for our future. Thank you. I'd like to call on my friend MJ Perry to thank the man who made all of this possible. MJ? Thank you, Robin. I have what is probably the most pleasant task of today's luncheon, and with your indulgence, President Levy, I'd like to do it in two parts. First, I'd like to thank you for inviting us to this absolutely fabulous facility. For some of us, myself included, when a 46 years ago tonight, a young red-headed girl was with her mom and dad at Center Ice Reds. Um, it has been a wonderful trip down memory lane, and I have talked with others, and you have done a fabulous thing with an important part of Toronto's history. Thank you. I would also like to thank you for introducing us to some innovative ideas and some wonderful people and helping us see a way into the future. Today I have learned about how we can better express ourselves and make who we are known through toys and games and digital wonderful things that are fun. I have seen hope for people who thought their lives were changed for the worse forever. And I have also found a way that I can support my Glasgow Rangers from afar. <laughs> my father was an entrepreneur who said, he was a success only because one person believed in him sufficiently to give him funding and to support him psychologically while he built his business. I find that that is a story that is still true, that we need people who will provide funding and support, and I was so excited to hear your stories. Um, thank you so much for sharing them with us. Thank you so much for opening this world to us, President Levy. And on behalf of the Empire Club, our sincere appreciation and gratitude. You know, some people sometimes observe that this 
organization and this function is a relic of the 19th century, a group of people getting together to hear a speaker at lunch. But I think today maybe we took it into the 21st century a little. It was a, a great afternoon, and we're very grateful to Sheldon and Ryerson for making it possible. We have some more interesting events coming up, if I may say, just before we adjourn, that next Monday, Andy Byford, the new CEO of the TTC, who's doing a fabulous job there, is going to join us for a speech at the Royal York Hotel. I think that will be a fascinating event. On Wednesday, the 29th, we're going to have a panel on venture capital, also at the Royal York, with some very interesting participants. Details on our website. On the 5th of June, Stephen Bashar, the governor of Kentucky, will address us, who's one of America's more interesting governors, I'm told, at the Arcadian Court. And on the 20th of June, we're going to have His Eminence Thomas Cardinal Collins being interviewed by Anna Maria Tremonti at the Canadian Room of the Royal York. May I once again thank Rogers, our very cooperative sponsor. They've done a lot of great things with us together this year. We're very grateful, Nadir, for your support. Uh, the Office of the Pre Vice President of Research and Innovation for sponsoring our student table this afternoon. The National Post, our print media sponsor. This meeting was carried and aired on Rogers TV, and we're grateful to them for their ongoing support. We're on Twitter and Facebook, and now on Flybits, I hope. <laughs> And if you provided us with an email address, you'll be getting an email this afternoon from Sheldon Levy with contact information for these entrepreneurs who presented today. Thank you all for coming. This meeting is adjourned.